Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to be. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, hello and welcome to the program. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Be sure to check us out on Facebook. The Joey Clark Radio Hour. Just give it a search. We're working on a website. Man, what a weekend. It was a fun weekend. was able to meet with old family members I hadn't seen in a while. Meet with people I love dearly. Watch something funny. Did the busy work, the usual errands that you do on the day. Washing the laundry. Cleaning up the carpet. So I've been doing all this yoga up in my room and it started to smell nasty. Clean the bathroom out. You know, you look at yourself and you're like, okay, I'm clean, but you look at where you clean yourself up and go, goodness, I am filthy. I'm, how could I be this filthy just from things I produce without even thinking about? My sweat, my other things that come out of me. It's just gross. You're so gross, Joey. But I try not to think about it too much. I clean it up as I listen to podcasts. Watched a little bit of football. I always love to sit down with my grandfather, Ron, after doing his yard and chat about the world a little bit. No family members I got to meet were my Uncle Dave, my Aunt Karen, my cousin Jessica. They used to live here in Montgomery. Dave and Karen are now in Charlotte. Jessica's in Philadelphia. That city of brotherly love. And we are hashing it out. Whether it was standards of sexual harassment and assault or how economics essentially allows us to do everything. That without a robust economy, without the heart of capital markets, creating wealth, allowing people to trade, we wouldn't have a lot of the social progress that we have today. It's hard to pass child labor laws. It's hard to create parity between men and women. It's hard to create harmony between races and religions without freedom and without wealth. And I think that says a lot. And for all our ideals, our hope, our love, our faith, that without some of the material progress that we have made, Without some of the sciences, I don't think we could fulfill the ideals that our faith, our hope, and our love inform us with. So I wake up Sunday morning and I decided to sit down and read a book. A silent partner of mine who will remain anonymous for now. But he handed me this book over breakfast the other day. Honestly, I'd never read it simply called A Confession 
by Leo Tolstoy. And unlike War and Peace, the book is not that long at all. How long? I mean, we're only talking 70-something pages. But it's essentially a confession by Tolstoy. That he came to where he didn't believe. He just sort of took off his faith. That science and reason would provide. Well, in my opinion, that's where Tolstoy made his first mistake. He deified reason. He said, reason will give me all the answers. But before he ever had language to understand this word, this world and the words that you speak, before he ever had language, I'd imagine human beings coming out of the muck and the mud had to strive to fight with one another, to fight over resources, to create in the face of a difficult existence. I worry that I and so many of us who are the benefactors of thousands of years of change and wealth built up, but in particular the wealth that's been built up over the last 200 years, it seems we don't understand what was required of people to create that wealth in the first place. Now today we seem to be fighting over the spoils and fighting over the power that will divvy up the spoils. But what it took to create wealth, and wealth has not only allowed us to have little gadgets, to have new iPhones, to be able to connect on the internet, to not only do incredible things, but also incredibly destructive things with new technologies, but wealth also allows us to be better people. It really does. What created wealth wasn't putting brick on top of brick. It wasn't necessarily having manpower and labor. Plenty of powerful civilizations, whether you're talking about Egypt or China, ancient civilizations had plenty of people and plenty of resources. Even Rome, one of the greatest empires in world history, had plenty of people. They had slaves. They had plenty of intelligence. Yet they didn't create a lot of the modern marvels we see today. Now what gave us the modern world was a certain way of looking at one another. At looking in particular at the middle class and the working class. Not looking down our noses at the working class. Not conscripting the middle and working class into our armies or as slaves to do our dirty work. But looking at the middle and working class as equals. As people with dignity. Whose freedom and choices needed to be respected. That they should be allowed to make money, to innovate, to tinker, and trade with one another. Not only products and services, but ideas. And this would be a great benefit. And they were right. 
Now, this didn't happen. Somebody didn't get out a big bullhorn and say, hey, everybody start uh, respecting the bourgeoisie. Everybody start respecting the middle class and the townsfolk. No, it just slowly but surely started to happen. In my mind, it's a mix of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, but also a mix, a sort of a dusting off through people like Aquinas of the Greek and Roman virtues. And when we were able, or governments and ruling classes, took a step back and said, you know what, all these virtues are found in all these people we claim to rule. Those people started to create incredible things. They started to create the modern world. And in many ways, that's what allowed Leo Tolstoy to get out of his funk. To stop being an atheist. He said, I've been surrounded by the upper classes all my life. And even the religious people around me seem to be operating like me. Now, I've been around this way of thinking that Tolstoy comes to. Tolstoy claims that Solomon, the king of Israel, and Schopenhauer, so inspired Frederick Nietzsche, both thought this way. Knowing that life is a stupid joke played upon us, and still to go on living, washing oneself, dressing, dining, talking, and even writing books. I've seen this way of thinking in my own life. I've experienced it myself. Where you start to confuse hope with despair. You start to think my cynicism, my contempt, and my negative emotions are actually knowledge. And then if I just take out these things on other people or on myself, I'll be free of this terrible, terrible existence. I really want to thank the gentleman that gave me this Leo Tolstoy book, A Confession. So I read this book Sunday morning. And I'm not going to give a full book report here. And I decided to go see Thor Ragnarok. Not to give away a spoiler or anything, but they don't bury the lead. Ragnarok does come. It was... Despite a heavy title and what you would think is a heavy subject matter, The Apocalypse, the movie was hysterically funny. And I get out of the movie and I'm listening to reviews. I've had this great weekend full of beer and wings and family and friends and love. Then I say to myself, well, you've had the food and the drink and the family and the friends. You've done your deep reading. Reading up Don Tolstoy. You've gone and seen the movie with your best friend. Oh, you've forgotten to check the news, Joe. You do a radio show, so you need to check the news. The first thing I see is Rand Paul has been assaulted. Broke five ribs. Get better soon, Rand. We need you. 
But then I see the news in Texas, and it is horrifying to me. And it made me think about all the work I had been reading from Tolstoy. When I saw the face of the shooter who goes into a church, a church, to kill people he doesn't even know. For, of course, say this is an evil act. It's almost unconscionable to consider. He must be crazy or mad in some way. And despite me wanting the lights to always be on, the music to always be playing, furniture of the home, family, friends surrounding me, that the music can't always play. The lights can't always be on. Tragedy does strike. Even in the midst of beautiful things and accomplishments we could never imagine until they happen. And I think of something Tolstoy wrote in this book, A Confession. Saying of his, well, disillusionment, his despair, essentially he comes to the idea that the only thing to do is, for him, after all his accomplishments and all of his writing and his family and his friends, that well, really, I'm just a rat in a cage, mouse on a wheel. I need to kill myself. He looks to people around him to see, well, how are they responding to this terrible truth that life is awful, a terrible, sad joke? How do y'all deal with it? And he says there are four ways people deal with it. One is not to accept that life is senseless, vanity, and and evil. That these people couldn't even fathom that it's better not to live. I'll just say, Leo, that uh, I don't think you're giving the lower classes enough credit, and that's actually where Tolstoy learns to find his faith, by visiting people who work all day. But then the second way is to go on living this life knowing that In the end, we all leave. We have to leave the party. We may not see each other again. It's a terrible reality, death. But he couldn't enjoy life. He couldn't lick the honey. He couldn't be drunk on life. Because he knew there were people suffering. He knew there were people being shot in churches. People being hung for unjust reasons. He knew there was terrible things going on in the world. So he couldn't enjoy life. He claims, quote, my imagination was too vivid. He couldn't go the third way because he was a coward. He realized the only thing left for me to do is kill myself, but he couldn't do it. So he went the fourth way, what he calls the path of weakness, knowing that I've got to get rid of this existence. It's terrible, but I I can't bring myself to do it. Well, I think Tolstoy leaves out a fifth way. 
And we saw it this weekend in Texas. That somebody who confused their pain, their despair, their anger for wisdom. And that person allowed his pain, his anger, his despair to inform his actions. Instead of taking himself out, instead of quietly dying in a room somewhere, he decided to go kill other people. Now it's breaking tonight that there were problems between this shooter and his in-laws. It seems as though this might have started from a domestic tragedy and from this guy's own deeds, abusing his wife and kid. But it's clear that snowballed on him. And so, folks, in the last week or so, we have a man who claims he's a preacher of atheism, calling everybody else who doesn't agree with his atheism an idiot. Killing 5% of a small town in Texas while they're practicing their faith. And then we have a man in New York City who claims fervently to be a believer running people down in a rented truck in the name of his faith in their political project. See, there's a fine line between being overzealous and being in complete and utter despair. There's a choice you have to make. Am I going to let these things in my imagination get the better of me to take away that creative aspect of me, to take away my ability to see the beautiful things in life, to take away my hope for things that happen after life? Or am I going to give in to the cruel fact that the world is terrible and evil and I have to take it out on somebody else or myself? You know, I wish I could have come on these radio airwaves tonight and talked about Thor Ragnarok in detail. Or talked about football. Or spicy food. Which is doing a number on my bowels. Or catching up with family and friends. I wish I could talk about all these things. But the lights can't always be on. The music can't always be playing. We can't be comparing how great our cars are or the furniture we have in our houses. Eventually, the dirty little secret of life, which really isn't any secret at all, because most people who have lived and died in this world, the people doing the living and dying in this world, have come to see this. That for all the beautiful things we create, for all the wealth we create and share, and even if you do the right thing, day after day, 
life can very much be tragic. Even if you just want to go to church on a Sunday morning in your small town, hear the Gospels, sometimes it ends in tragedy. Even if you're a health nut, you're trying to make other people in your life healthy. In fact, you went into work to become a nurse because you enjoy taking care of people. Sometimes you get brain cancer and you die too soon. Sometimes friends die too soon, whether it's because they made a mistake in their own life or some drunk hits them. Yes, life is fragile, and it can be incredibly tragic. But the fact that I pick up my phone after a weekend of study and merriment, revelry even, the fact that tragic things happen in this world and tragic things have happened to me and I'm sure they've happened to you doesn't take away from the fact that there are incredible things to enjoy in this world. And that if we have faith or hope, and yes, I am an atheist who's trying to figure things out, but I do believe faith is a virtue. I do believe hope is a virtue. That you can't always get what you want. And you may not be able to figure out all the secrets and mysteries of the universe. So the fact that several people in Texas shot and killed. The fact that people die from cancer or from terrorist attacks. The fact that tragedy happens in this world doesn't take away from the fact that there is also comedy in this world. And if we have the faith and the hope that the art we create is not a mirror of life, but in fact, life often mirrors our fictions, we can start to understand that, oh, there is a chance that we reach a higher rung on the ladder, that we continue climbing. Knowing that we might not have tomorrow. Leo Tolstoy's crazy, man. Reading his book of confessions, what's got me in this weird, introspective mood. But the night does come. So prepare yourself. Even if you're always surrounded by good times and good friends, prepare for dark times. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Guard your spirit. Because we live in interesting times, folks. Because not only did somebody shoot somebody up in Texas this weekend, not only did this past week somebody shoot somebody in Chicago or New York, Or, well, people get shot every day and we don't even hear about it on the news headlines. Not only did a month ago somebody kill dozens and dozens of people in Las Vegas and that a truck driver and terrorists run over each other or that Saudi Arabia and Iran are looking like they might go to war 
the Middle East in general is bedlam with Yemen and Syria and the Kurds wanting their independence. North Korea threatening nuclear wars. China threatens more territorial claims in the oceans. And the U.S. government has their nose in every part of all that. And I forgot, of course, to mention Russia. Yeah, we live in interesting times. There's all sorts of threats. So prepare yourself for those threats that things might go bad. But at the end of the day, don't think that because things might go badly that you can't enjoy yourself. Just because things might end up in a tragedy that your love doesn't matter and your hope doesn't matter and holding strong to your convictions doesn't matter, it does. We don't do the right thing because it's some reward we're looking for later. You do the right thing because you think it's right. Now, unfortunately, I think this guy in Texas did the wrong thing, the evil thing, because he knew it was evil. Instead of taking it out on himself, he took it out on others. Really, this Tolstoy book is a confession of a man who changed, who was in utter despair, who thought life was meaningless. And then when he looked to people beyond him, he realized that actually faith is what sustains us all. It's a very good book. There's another dark night of the soul I was experiencing though this weekend. I forgot to tell you folks. I went over and went to Skipper's house and picked up an album he acquired for me. And it's the album of the day. Now it's a weird album. It's from 1988. That year, of course, his royal badness, Prince was supposed to follow up 1987's Sign of the Times, which was a huge hit for him, with an album called The Black Album. Essentially, Prince was appealing to not only his alter egos, his darker side, but also as he said to black audiences, that he had been criticized, that he had given up on the funk and the R&B that had initially given him success, and he'd gone become a pop artist. So he wanted to create an album that was down and dirty funk. But before the black album is released, Prince has, let's say, a revelation. He realizes, man... Look at me there, caught up in life's pleasures, and yet how dark I am, how despairing I am. Don't release that, Warner Brothers. Here, I'll, I'll create a new album for you real quickly. And he came up with an album that isn't exactly a masterpiece, but it is interesting. The album is called Love Sexy. It's a weird album, folks. But it does have this hit, a little slice here of Alphabet Street. Off the album Love Sexy, Prince, 1988. And, well, it's a good album in some respects. You can tell the guy was going through some changes. And aren't we all? This is the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'll be right back.
better day. Joey Clark. Joey Clark. Well, welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. This song is also off 1988's Love Sexy, a song called I Wish You Heaven. Happy and sweet, isn't it? Thank you so much. You know, this book, A Confession by Leo Tolstoy, reminds me of something I was thinking about a while ago. In a word, it can be summed up with why. For instance, I presume the government I live under, that most people live under, most governments are swift to evil. And even swifter to call evil good, or at least necessary. Now, the reason I think this is quite simple, it's not because I think governments or the people running the governments are inherently evil. It's just that through the eyes of any given fool, which is most of the human race, myself included, any desire held with enough conviction can be seen as good, or even worse, as a duty. You think the people that ran planes into the two towers thought they were committing an evil act? Even though millions of people in the United States and Europe and across the world thought what they were doing was evil. Do you think the guys, the terrorists who engage in suicide bombings and the like, kamikaze pilots flying for the emperor of Japan, thought they were doing evil? No, again, with enough conviction and enough time and enough incentive, any desire can be seen as good or worse as a duty. Rarely do we find people engaging in evil for evil's sake. And I would put that simply as what we saw in Texas this weekend. Evil for evil's sake. Destruction. No, most people perceive what they want What is the good I want? And then they proceed to act upon it with some justification or another, some standard, grounding their arguments in God or society or nature. And in doing so, the duty-bound mind, whether that of the partisan political player, the government bureaucrat, the company man, religious zealots, the reformer, or the like, they, they're often quick to forget, sometimes willfully, the naked self-interest and vanity that underlies human desire. 
As H.L. Mencken once wrote in his usual cynical manner, and Mencken said a cynic is somebody upon seeing flowers looks around for a coffin, uh, he put it this way. All men who, in any true sense, are sentient, strive mightily for distinction and power, i.e. for the respect and envy of their fellow men, i.e. for the ill-natured admiration of an endless series of miserable and ridiculous bags of rapidly disintegrating amino acids. Why? Well, though I don't really agree with how cynical Minkin gets there, why indeed do we strive for distinction and power when at best these achievements are fleeting or misunderstood and reliant on the bad faith of our fallible fellow human beings? Well, because there is no escaping the question of why. This is what Leo Tolstoy discovered in A Confession. It is what Oscar Wilde discovered in De Profundis. It is what so many people who have taken the time to look at their own lives, people who are atheists, people who are believers, most people of good faith ask why. The ever-present why. It's not just the beginning of a kid annoying their parent. Why, Mommy? Why, Daddy? Well, why is the sky blue? Well, why do you say that to where you end up in some existential crisis? Well, I can't explain why anything exists, kid. Not just a silly question of why. A childlike question of why. But why sneaks into our most important questions that we can ask ourselves and each other. Why is there anything at all? Why are we here? Why do I do what I do? The why of our lives sneaks into all our actions, impresses us with the irony that we have no choice but to choose. Without choice, morality would simply be a matter of standing in a very long line, an endless parade of boredom. And it would really be no morality at all. We would just be acting on instinct, like many animals. Or acting due to the forces of nature. Non-living entities. But once we recognize the primordial fact that individuals engage in conscious actions toward chosen goals, this parade becomes not one of boredom or obedience to authority, but one of necessary creation in the face of powers beyond our control. That is how we have created the modern world. Because we looked and saw there are things beyond our control, but the world does make a little sense, whether through science or art, and hope and faith that we can get better. And once we face this fact that we have to choose, our fundamental moral choice as human beings becomes clear. The choice is, as Ayn Rand put it, rational being or suicidal animal. Or if I may put that in Shakespearean cliche, to be or not to be, that is the question. At the end of the day, you have a choice. Do you want to live or do you want to die? Was it in Shawshank, get busy living or get busy dying? Yet this deep-seated irony of our existence, that we have no choice but to choose life or die... It boggles many minds. It boggled Toy Story. It boggles me. And it leads to a menu of false choices. Is the good grounded in reason or instinct or God? Is the good given by authorities on heaven or by authorities on earth? Are we inherently good or bad? 
or as some claim, fallen? Are we as many Muslims demand to give our obedience to God? Not question his ways? Are we to pray? I've been thinking this since I was very young. And maybe I'm wrong on this, and I'll find out someday. But it's a confession of sorts. I don't think we're innately good or bad or even fallen. I think we're inherently free. Creative. We're limited. But that is our calling. To create and to name things in the face of forces beyond our control and at times our understanding. And we can understand what is good, not only through reason, but also looking at instinct. Too many people get caught up in the life of the mind, and they downplay the life of the body. I will bet you a hundred bucks that this guy who shot up a church didn't take care of his body, didn't take care of himself. That there was something physically going on with him that led his mind to dark avenues. And blind alleys. You see, what is good and right is gleaned by our ability to use reason to reflect on our desires and choose a course of action. Morality is fundamentally a matter of individual choice to affirm your life. Accordingly, as far as I see it today, the good is not defined by authorities in heaven or on earth. It is not a case of following this or that command. What is good defines who or what has authority. Authorities do not define what is right and wrong. And an unjust authority is no authority at all. And if it be so unjust, it is evil. And if it is evil, it is unnecessary. Evil is not necessary. You always have a choice, a radical freedom to stand against it. That is my faith. But too often I get caught up in bad faith. And I think so many other people do. And by bad faith, I mean you're caught up in a certain area. You know if you had the option, if you're just speaking for yourself, you would do the right thing. But because I'm part of, say, the Republican or Democratic Party, I have to play along. Because I'm in this job for the government, I have to play along. Because I'm a waiter, I have to sit and smile and grin at the rude customer sitting at the table. And though smiling at a rude person isn't necessarily evil, the point is is that bad faith means given your social standing or position, you act in an unauthentic manner. You somewhat lie to yourself with your actions and what you really want to be. All that being said, what really boggles my mind is the idea that government is a necessary evil. The state, as we understand it today, the system as we understand it today, is a necessary evil. You know, all these headlines that millennials are tired of capitalism, that the system isn't working for them. Well, the system we have now 
call it capitalism, call it whatever you like. It isn't working. It's not working for millennials, and it's not working for most people. Not in the long run. It's pitting us against each other. Again, instead of understanding the values and the virtues that allowed us to create the modern world, we are worshiping at the seat of power. And we're hoping that we can control that power to divvy up the spoils in some just way. Of course, that famous line, necessary evil, comes from Thomas Paine, old Tom Paine, and his famous work common sense saying quote some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them whereas they are not only different but have different origins society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness the former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections the latter negatively by restraining our vices the one encourages intercourse in exchange the other creates distinctions the first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society is the patron. Government is the punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable evil. But if government were really necessary, old Tom Paine, uh, then it would be a good not a lesser of two evils. To place government or the state beyond good and evil, which is really all the phrase necessary evil accomplishes, it's a perilous thing to propose. Mr. Payne is right to say too many people conflate society with government. He's right to say that at its best, government is evil. Government is, of course, only a collection of people it's not this thing that exists above and beyond us. As an institution, it is subject to a moral test. And when you look throughout history, you look at the governments today, I think they fail. Every time. But voluntary governance is not evil. Looking out for one another is not evil. Defending each other's freedoms, defending each other's faiths, is not evil. But the state, as it exists today, masquerading as society is, very evil. And it makes us forget what gave us the beautiful things in life to begin with. I'm troubled to hear so many people presume that the government, the state, is not the servant of moral thought, but the authority in matters of deciding what is good and evil. And once again, this is putting the state beyond those categories. And it makes morality a set of marching orders. In the case of American democracy, this is accomplished, as Mr. Payne noticed in his time, by conflating society with the state. Society is claimed to be beyond good and evil, and its will becomes the arbiter of right and wrong. But in other contexts, it is and was accomplished by making the state the arm of the divine, or by cloaking it in the objective garb of so-called science, or by making the father of the nation, or by coming right out and acting upon the notion that might makes right. This last claim that might makes right is probably the most honest of the bunch. 
it admits the true pith of the state. The fact that so many states have been born in bloodshed is well established. War is the birth of the state and often the deathbed of liberty. The only states tolerable to live under are those that have somewhat embraced the principles of liberty. That so many states have not is an affirmation of the will to power. Evidence of the naked self-interest and vanity underlying so many human desires. And if I may answer, answer Mr. Minkin's cynical pondering, why do men seek distinction and power or as he puts it, quote, the ill-natured admiration of an endless series of miserable and ridiculous bags of rapidly disintegrating amino acids. Well, the answer is again to attack the question, Mr. Macon poses. Truly sentient, but not only sentient, but feeling men understand that what they are and who they are is not just their life of the mind, but also the life of the body. And that they are on borrowed time. They do not merely seek distinction and power. But they seek the good life guided by reason. To confuse power and notoriety with flourishing is a gross mistake. Such vanities always crumble. What do I mean by the good life? Well, to steal from Epicurus... Tranquility of the mind and relaxation of the body. And it doesn't mean that you look away from life's tragedies, tragedies or deny that life's tragedies aren't coming. Just to say that the honey is still sweet, even though death might come one day when we least expect it. I venture that the best people the human race has ever produced have probably escaped our history books and escaped our monuments, all for the better. Their glory will not slowly disintegrate or burn, because glory was never what they sought in the first place. They only sought to live a life of their own choosing, guided by their heart and their reason. And if they ever found tranquility in their mind and relaxation in their bodies... For even the briefest moments, paradise was theirs and will be for all time. Because eternity doesn't begin after this game is over. It's going on right now. Life is not the absence of pain. It's not to fade into darkness like the hesitant whimper of a dying flame. It's not to sit and wish for the world to answer your hopes and dreams desires. Life is to burn with vigor and passion, with independence and integrity and pride, to witness our achievements in the passing of time, to see what we can do in the face of powers beyond our control and so often beyond our understanding. Heavy topic, but that's what you get for Suggesting I read Tolstoy. I love talking about this stuff, and I might be wrong in some ways, folks. But I've said what I believe in. But the conversation has only begun. Join me again tomorrow night. My name is Joey Clark, and I hope you have a wonderful evening. <laughs>